Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. And we're taking two weeks to cover Daniel 7 uh, because of the extensiveness of the prophecy. We're going to try to get through the entire chapter 8 of Daniel next week, but then we're going to take at least two weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Just just a lot of stuff to get through, and I don't want to go through it so quickly that, that we just don't get at least a handle on it in some way. So let me go back real quick to the first half of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision. And in the vision, God is basically laying out for Daniel what we call the skeleton of biblical prophecy. That if we can get a hold of Daniel 7 then every other prophecy in the Word of God, whether Old Testament or New Testament, somehow all of that other flesh fits on the skeleton that Daniel gives us in Daniel chapter 7. Okay? So it's really a key passage, a key chapter in the Bible, especially in regards to prophecy. And remember, he saw, in a sense, five kingdoms that uh, sort of summarized the kingdoms that were to come on the earth. The first one was the one that Daniel was actually presently in, the kingdom of Babylon, that was symbolized by Nebuchadnezzar's head of gold in Daniel chapter 2. Then after Babylon was going to come the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, symbolized by the upper torso and arms of silver, symbolizing the Medes and the Persians. Then the belly of bronze, which symbolized uh, Alexander and the great Greek empire. And then the legs of iron, it symbolized the Roman empire. The thing that we've got to keep in mind is that many times in biblical prophecy, there is a near and far fulfillment. So what I mean by that is when Daniel's describing the fourth great kingdom, being the Roman empire, out of that, he's also describing another kingdom that is yet to come. And that is the kingdom that's symbolized by the ten toes. And out of even those ten kings or ten kingdoms, we're going to see one king rise above them all. And he's going to be the Antichrist that basically is the world ruler of the final kingdom before the fifth and final kingdom comes, which comes when Jesus Christ comes and sets up his earthly kingdom. And then out of that even, a forever kingdom. Got all that, right? Okay. So here's where Daniel picks it up. There's a few things in that vision that particularly struck him that he wanted to know more about. But before that, notice what Daniel records in Daniel 7.15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed, literally pierced, grieved, and the visions of my mind were alarming me. Now, folks, this isn't some new believer. This isn't a baby Christian here. This isn't some new follower of God. Daniel was a mature, a faithful follower for many years of God. And yet what God was showing him in his revealed word was really bothering him. It was affecting him. And the point that I made last week, but I want to go back to it because we're picking it up at this point, is... God wants His Word to affect us. Whether it's positive or negative, He wants His Word to affect us. In fact, He set up His Word that way. 
The writer of Hebrews says, The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit between the joints and marrow of the bone and is a discerner of the thoughts and even the intents of the heart. And Daniel was being affected by the Word of God. And again, I mean that positive. If God has given you His Word to encourage you, let it encourage you. If He's given you promises to encourage you, let His Word encourage you. But if He's given us warnings and He's, and he's, and he's given us His Word to convict and to challenge and all that, then we need to let it do that as well. We need to let the Word of God affect us. It's got to be more than words on a page. We've got to apply it to our life and let it affect us like Daniel did. And what Daniel saw that God had show, shown him about what was going to happen in the future really bothered him. Can you imagine? I mean, we get bothered about thinking about the future, where we live. Can you imagine thousands of years ago being Daniel looking down the quarters of time going, oh my goodness, all that's going to happen? Wow. And, and one of the things we're going to see that really bothered Daniel, obviously as a Jew was the pain that his own people were going to have to endure throughout their history. That really, until Jesus comes and sets up his earthly kingdom, the news isn't really good for the nation of Israel. Their whole history uh, can be described by adversity and pain and all of that. So it, it bothered him, it grieved him, it vexed him, if you will. But then he goes on to say this. I approached one of those standing nearby. And he doesn't tell us who the person is. And yet I believe probably in the context, if you go back up to chapter 7, verse 10, remember as Daniel saw the throne of God, he also said many thousands were ministering to him and tens of thousands stood ready to serve him. And so it could have been any one of those people. In fact, I think it probably was just some random person there around the throne of God or one of God's angelic creatures. And and the reason I don't think Daniel, you know, mentioned that was because he is also reminding us that anyone who say now in heaven, whether they're an angel or whether they're a saint of God who died and went on to be with Jesus, They have a much different perspective and a much clearer perspective about things than we ever will on this side. So it wouldn't have mattered really who Daniel talked to. They were going to have a clarity being on that side than we can on this side. And Paul said the same thing. He said, now we look in a mirror and it's it's dark because there's a lot that we just simply don't know. So he grabbed somebody who was standing nearby and he asked him about the meaning of all this. The word meaning there in the Aramaic really means more than just the explanation of it. That word meaning means the reliability of it. In other words, Daniel isn't so much saying, he he will say in a minute, I want you to explain this to me uh, so that I can understand it better. But that's not what he's saying with this word. With this word, it it would have been better to say, I want to know, is what I'm seeing, is this reliable? (laughs) Is this really going to happen the way this has all been laid out? And then he says, he spoke with me and revealed to me the interpretation of the vision. He helped Daniel to understand it, but also to understand that it was reliable. Folks, if God's word isn't reliable, then we've got nothing. 
And even when it comes to prophecy, we've got nothing if it's not reliable. If we can't put our lives and, de- and have our lives depend upon it. And that's why Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word of God and it is a reliable thing. We can rely upon the word of God. We can trust it. We can place our faith in it and it will hold up because it's God's word. So notice verse 17. These large beasts, which are four in number, represent four kings who will arise from the earth. So remember something, again, not from our perspective, but from Daniel's perspective, the majority of these prophecies had yet to be unfolded or fulfilled. Daniel was living in the first great kingdom of the earth, Babylon, but the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans haven't come yet. And the reason I say that is because now, because we're on the other side of those, we can look back and we can be assured and and we can confirm that again what God said was reliable because exactly what happened in human history happened after the Babylon Babylonians was the Medes and Persians after the Medes and Persians was Alexander and the great Greek empire and after that was the great Roman empire and so Daniel was trusting in it way back then even though he was in the very beginning stages of it we can look back and go, you're right, God, everything has unfolded up to this point exactly as you said, so why shouldn't I trust you and continue to trust you for what you're saying is going to happen in the future? Because as I look back over history, everything in the Bible about ancient history has happened just as you said it would before it happened. So notice, the Holy Ones, verse 18, of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will take possession of the kingdom forever and ever. Who are the holy ones? The words holy ones just simply mean set apart for God's purposes. And I believe that the holy ones or the saints, if you will, of God are from every age. They're the saints of God in the Old Testament. They're the saints of God now, you and I, in the New Testament. In the church age, there's going to be saints of God during the tribulation period because people will come to Christ during that tribulation period. So there are saints or holy ones in each age. And folks, we're not born holy. And and we can't work to become holy and make ourselves holy. The only way we can obtain holiness is by accepting the holiness that God gives us as a gift for trusting in His Son, Jesus. But when we trust in Jesus, then the Bible says, He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us on the cross as a curse to God, so that in Him we might have the righteousness of God. So God not only takes away our sin when we trust in Christ, but exchanges our sin for His righteousness. And gives us his righteousness. So that we are made holy through Christ. You see. So today, you and I who know Christ here, we can rejoice. Because we didn't have to try to earn our way to heaven. And work our way to heaven. Which was never going to happen. Because we were never going to be good enough. We had to accept Christ's righteousness by faith. Through his grace. And aren't you glad you did that? Absolutely. 
So I believe that the holy ones, part of that crew there that he's talking about here, includes you and I. If you're here tonight and you know Christ is your Savior, and you've been made righteous through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, you're in verse 18 of chapter 7 of Daniel. And don't miss what it says about the holy ones of the Most High or the highest one. We will receive a kingdom. And we will take possession. By the way, the Aramaic words take possession means treasure. We will treasure being part of God's kingdom forever and ever. And by the way, the word kingdom there means ruling and reigning. You see, one of the things we as Christians have to keep telling ourselves, because it's what the Bible teaches, is that God not only saved us so that we could have a relationship with Him. But He has a plan for us. And the plan someday, and and everything that we go through down here on earth, whether it's through, you know, perfecting us to make us more like Jesus and purifying us and taking us through all the events of life, are there not just to make us better kingdom citizens one day, but they are there to prepare us to rule and reign With Christ in His kingdom. And His kingdom isn't just going to last for that thousand year millennial kingdom. It's going to last, as Daniel says, even forever and ever. You might not see yourself tonight, even as a Christian, as one who's capable of ruling and reigning. But that's what God sees in you and me. That's the potential He sees because that's what He created man to be All along, when he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he said, I want you to have dominion over the earth. I created mankind to rule and reign. And when they sinned, they lost the ability to rule and reign effectively. Which is why, again, in Daniel's prophetic word, God is letting man have his own way and run the show on earth for a while, but eventually God's going to say, think you've messed it up enough now. Now I'm coming in to set it all straight. But when he does that, he's going to make us rulers and reigners with Christ. That's what the Christian life's all about. That's why it's so important that we live a faithful Christian life. Because some of you say, well, if, I, if I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven, then what's it matter really how I live the rest of my life? Because Jesus clearly teaches in the Gospels and the New Testament teaches that the way we live our lives after we become Christians will determine our role and responsibility and the opportunities that God gives us throughout eternity. That's why Jesus said, if you've been faithful in your earthly life over this, then he says, I'll give you this in the kingdom. You see Because Matthew 24 and 25 is in the context of the future kingdom. And so it is very important how we live our Christian life and how faithful we are. Because we are setting ourselves up for ruling and reigning with Christ. Tomorrow, if you have a really bad day, or this week is really bad, keep telling yourself, but one day I'm going to rule and reign with Christ. And maybe your boss is giving you a hard time and your job is just, and you just keep, but I'm going to rule and reign with Christ. 
And praise God, if you one day, boss, get saved, I'm going to rule in... No, no, he won't say it. He won't say it. God wouldn't do that. Wouldn't do that. All right. Now, out of all that, though, notice Daniel, Daniel's fixation. As great as that news is that there's a forever kingdom coming, and folks, don't forget that. There's a forever kingdom coming, and we're going to be part of it. That's not what Daniel focused on. Because Daniel saw all the pain that was going to come before that took place. And so, of all the things, Daniel wanted to know more about that. So he says, I wanted to know, verse 19, the meaning of the fourth beast. By the way, the word wanted, or the words wanted to know, a deep desire. Daniel had a desire to know more of what God had revealed Folks, that's what God's looking for. That's what I love about the folks that come to the Oasis. You have a desire to know more about what God has said in his word. That's Daniel. He wanted to know more. And guess what? Because he had that desire, God gave him more understanding. Because that's what God's looking for. You want more? I'll give you more if you can be trusted with it. And Daniel wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beach, which was different, notice, from all the others. It was very dreadful with two rows of iron teeth and bronze claws and it devoured, crushed, and trampled anything that was left with its feet. I also wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns on its head and of that other horn which came up and before which three others fell. This was the horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking arrogant things whose appearance was more formidable than the others. Now remember, this horn has been called many things. In Daniel's prophecy. Uh, and, and we know he's talking about this horn because several times he's talked about the thing that really struck Daniel about this person was how arrogant and proud he was and how he spoke so arrogantly. In fact, he said the same thing up in verse 11 of chapter 7. Notice he said, Then I kept on watching because of the arrogant words of the horn that was speaking. There was something that just rose his arrogance and pride above anything Daniel had ever experienced in his life. And Daniel said there's something different about him. And notice verse 21, while I was watching, the horn began to wage war against the holy ones and was defeating them. No wonder Daniel was upset. How could this happen? How could God allow this to happen? What was God's purpose in all of this? First of all, I want to go back to this horn. Remember back in Daniel chapter 7 early on, he talks about this insignificant horn that grows up amongst the ten kings. And so at the beginning, you get the idea that this horn really isn't much to look at at the beginning. But all of a sudden, he becomes a horn that's able to dispose of three of the kings And then all of a sudden he becomes a king himself. And now Daniel says in verse 20, he becomes more formidable, literally in the Aramaic, greater in power than all the others. And folks, I believe, and again, I know that I'm bringing a lot of stuff in here only because we don't have time to go into detail of how we got there. But I believe you're going to see clearly in the weeks ahead that who Daniel is talking about here is the Antichrist. This person that Daniel was describing here is the Antichrist. And he says, the Antichrist began to wage war against the Holy Ones and was literally prevailing against them. Keep your finger there in Daniel 13, 7 and go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which we're going to start studying in the month of May on Sundays and then switch to Tuesdays in June. 
just throw that commercial in there real quick. Notice in Revelation 13, 7, the Antichrist also goes by another name, the beast. And in Revelation 13, 7, John says the very same thing that Daniel was saying. He's saying that the beast was permitted to go to war against the saints and conquer them. And notice not only conquer them, but notice that the Antichrist basically uh, has dominion over the entire world. Because the Bible says he was given ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Now, the saints, the holy ones that Daniel's talking about, that he's prevailing over in Daniel chapter 7, in the context, isn't us. We're in heaven during this time. The rapture's already taken place. This is during the tribulation period. The saints, the holy ones that the Antichrist is prevailing over, are the saints, that, the people who become Christians during the tribulation period. The people who either have to take the mark of the beast, or they die. So this is part of that prevailing over the saints. That's why people say, well, I'll just wait and see if this all works out like God says, and I'll become a Christian in the, in the tribulation. Really? Is that what you really want? First of all, there's no guarantee. When God's Spirit is calling you to salvation, if you turn Him down, there's no guarantee you're going to have another opportunity. That's why the book of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Don't put off salvation. That would be foolish. There are people who have died before they ever had an opportunity to utter another breath. But this is what Daniel's talking about. But notice verse 22 back in Daniel chapter 7. God always puts a time limit or a certain limit on anything that he allowed. Just like when Satan came to him and said, can I touch Job? And, and, and God, in His sovereignty, said, Okay, I'm going to give you these parameters, these boundaries, but you're not going to go outside of that. And God is going to allow the Antichrist, because it's going to be part of His plan, to prevail for a time over the saints of God during the tribulation time. But Daniel was seeing in his vision, verse 22, until, very important time word, until the Ancient of Days arrives and judgment was rendered in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. By the way, I want you to notice that back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, God the Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days, but here, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Ancient of Days. And that is telling us that Jesus is equal to the Father. That's one of the things the Bible clearly teaches. God is a triune God. He exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they are all equal to one another. There are a lot of teaching today on Jesus Christ. And one of the main teachings is that Jesus Christ is not fully God. Folks, Jesus Christ is the Ancient of Days. Equal to God the Father and God the Spirit. And when he arrives, he's going to bring justice. We sang about that. Justice on earth, in its reality, in, in its true sense, is never going to come until Jesus comes. 
There's not going to be any lasting real peace on earth until the Prince of Peace, Jesus, comes and sets up his earthly kingdom. Until then, man will seek to control and gain power and all of that over other men and the world will be in turmoil. And folks, I'm not telling you something you don't know. Read your newspapers. Watch the news. The world continues. And, and what's taking place in the Middle East and Northern Africa? Folks, it fits in exactly with what God predicted was going to happen. It's setting everything up for nations to surround that little country of Israel and for Israel to continue to have that bullseye on it. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks when we get into chapters 8 and 9. But notice this. Again, verse 22. Then the time came for the holy ones to take possession of the kingdom. Not only does God save sinners, He gives us a kingdom. And not just a temporary kingdom. He gives us a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. I hope you're part of that kingdom. I hope you know Christ is your Savior and You've been translated or transferred from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. And all that it takes to do that is simply trusting in Jesus Christ and just putting your trust in Him and saying, I believe, Jesus, You are the Son of God that died for me on the cross. And all I have to do is believe in that and You will save me. You will save me. Notice verse 23. This is what He continued to tell me. The fourth beast means that there will be a fourth kingdom on earth. That will differ from all the other kingdoms. It will devour all the earth and will trample and crush it. There's never been a kingdom in history that has completely taken over the entire globe. The kingdom of the Antichrist will be permitted to influence the entire globe. Then, verse 24... The ten horns mean that ten kings will arise from that kingdom. And and the initial look of that kingdom is going to be ten kings. a, a, A confederation of ten world rulers or kingdoms that will make up that. But there's going to come a ruler out of that ten kingdom confederacy that rises above all others. And that's the one called the Antichrist. Notice what he goes on to say. Another king, the little horn, will arise after them. But notice, he will be different from the earlier ones. He will, first of all, bring low or literally humiliate three kings. And notice what else the little horn or the Antichrist does to set himself apart. He will speak words against the Most High. He will harass the holy ones. Literally, he will wear down and wear out the holy ones of the Most High continually. His intention will be to change times established by law. What's this mean? Well, first of all, literally, it means to violate and frustrate. The Antichrist is going to seek to attack the very foundations of society. And throw all of society into, into a really uh, not knowing what the norm is. In order to frustrate the entire world by what he's doing. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. We, if we go any further than that, we're going to end up speculation. And 
that's not what I want this to be about. But the Bible clearly says that he will seek to attack the foundations, the very foundations of society, and will establish a new world order. Now, I want to read something to you that's very interesting. Because you've heard that term probably in your lifetime like I have. New world order. Folks, that's not a new term. In fact, almost a century ago, uh, and he wasn't the first one to use this, I want to read to you a quote that I, if you've never heard this, it, it's pretty sobering, by Sir Winston Churchill, who was speaking in Copenhagen while he was still Prime Minister of Great Britain. And listen to what Sir Winston Churchill said. The creation of an authoritative all-powerful world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. Unless some effective world super-government can be brought quickly into action, the proposals for peace and human progress are dark and doubtful. Folks, that's what the world is coming to. That's why we see globalization. And that's why the world has shrunk because of technology. Because much of what the Bible used to say about prophecy, people back, even our grandparents and great-grandparents, had a really hard time wrapping their mind around it. Especially like when the Bible would say, well, everyone on earth will see something. And they were like, how's that going to happen? And now all of a sudden, with the invention of television and satellite and cell phone and all of that... We all understand that anything can happen almost anywhere on the globe, and immediately everyone in the world can see it happen. And we all know, even here in the last few weeks, that what's happening in far off Japan is affecting not only our economy, but every economy in the world. It all is tied together. And it's going to continue to tie together during our lifetime. You're going to see the world and the way you and I grew up, it's going to continue to change. Because the Bible clearly teaches that though the Antichrist isn't here yet, that the foundation for the Antichrist is already being laid on the earth before he ever comes to power. Then notice, verse 25, They, the holy ones, will be delivered into the Antichrist's hand for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. God limits the Antichrist's power on the earth to three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. The first three and a half years is basically the ten kings and kingdoms setting everything up after the rapture and getting the world back to a certain place. But then the Antichrist will begin to ascend during the first three and a half years. And in the middle of the three and a half years, I believe he will clearly be identified. That's why I tell Christians all the time, don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. We're not going to be here. We, we probably don't even know who he is. Because here's another thing we're going to find out in a couple weeks. Because he's so insignificant at the beginning, we would never pick him out to be the Antichrist. And again, remember something about the world in which we live. Somebody that's very obscure now, a month from now could be all over the headlines. I mean, that's just the way the world is. And that's the way it's going to be. 
But God, notice, verse 26, the court will convene. Literally, the judgment and justice of God. And His ruling authority, the Antichrist, will be removed, destroyed, and abolished forever. Then, don't miss this, verse 27, the kingdom, authority, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven... In other words, all the earthly kingdoms, guess who they're going to be given to? You. They will be delivered. They will literally be placed into the hands of the people of the Most High. And Jesus will say, here, Jeff, here's your part. And here's your part. And sir, here's your part. And ma'am, here's your part over here. And we're going to rule and reign with Christ. And notice, Daniel again, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And I love this. All authorities will serve and obey him. Literally, listen to Jesus. All authorities. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 2, 8 and 9? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wouldn't it be great if all the world rulers now listen to Jesus? All the national authorities listen to Jesus? All the state authorities listen to Jesus? All the local authorities listen to Jesus? Well, guess what? One day, they will. One day, they will. Or they won't be ruling and reigning with Christ. And Daniel then says, this is a conclusion of the matter. As for me, Daniel, he sort of comes full circle. My thoughts troubled me greatly, just like we started tonight. And the color drained from my face. Because he began to think about what was going to happen on the earth centuries from the time he departed until the eternal kingdom came. And he says, I kept the matter to myself. It reminds me of what Mary did when there was so much after Jesus was born to take in that the Bible says she pondered all these things and kept them locked up in her heart. Because it was just too much to try to either absorb at one time and certainly it was too much for her to even try to articulate to someone else. That's exactly what was happening with Daniel. And that's why I don't want any of you, when you come on Tuesday night or Sunday and we talk about some of this stuff, to be overwhelmed by it. Daniel, one of the greatest saints of God ever, was overwhelmed by all of this. You and I can't absorb it all, but what we can absorb is this. What we can absorb is this. Turn to 1 John in closing. The book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John. Almost all the way back to the end of the Bible. Here's what we can absorb. 1 John 2, 15, 16, and 17. No matter what kings and kingdoms come and go, here's what the Bible says to us who are living. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, because all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the arrogance produced by material possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here's the key. 
And this is exactly what Daniel saw. And this is what we see as well. The world is passing away with all its desires. But take encouragement from the last phrase of verse 17. The person who does the will of God remains forever. Because we're part of that forever kingdom. Now one other thing tonight that I thought might be of interest to you. And I want to be careful here because I'm... (laughs) This is my own take on it, my own opinion. So please... Take it with a grain of salt. But one of the things that I have been studying, in fact, someone asked me last week, I think it was Sarah, who did I think that the ten kings or kingdoms were going to be at the end to make up, you know, out of which the Antichrist would come? And I wrestled with sharing my thoughts on that again because there's nothing in the Bible except there's going to be ten kings and kingdoms represented by that king. But I will say this, one thing that interests me is that the Bible does clearly teach that as we move closer to the end of time, that money really does drive everything. That that everything, that every decision that's pretty much made in the world for how things happen and how things fall out are based on wealth and and money. Because in this world, wealth and money equal power. So it's very interesting. I don't know whether you ever knew this or not, but talk about obscure. Talk about, talk about what you wouldn't expect. If I was to ask you, what are the ten wealthiest countries in the world right now? In fact, I added 11 because it's really obscure. And eventually there's going to be 11 kings or kingdoms. If I was to ask you, what are the 11 most wealthiest countries in the world, could you name them? My personal belief, and I might be wrong on this, I don't believe that most people in the world could name the 11 wealthiest countries at this time. I'm going to share them with you tonight. I think some of them will surprise you. The wealthiest country in the world, Luxembourg. Second wealthiest country, Qatar, some pronounce it Qatar, K-A-T-A-R. Third wealthiest country in the world, Norway. Fourth wealthiest country, Kuwait. Fifth wealthiest country, United Arab Emirates. Sixth wealthiest country, Singapore. Would you have put Singapore above the United States? Well, maybe, (laughs) knowing what's happening to our country. We do come in seventh now. Seventh is the United States. Eighth is Ireland. Nine. Here's a big one. Equatorial Guinea. I knew that was on your list. Ten. Switzerland. And eleven, a little country in Malaysia called Brunei. B-R-U-N-E-I. Some people have never even heard of that little country run by a bunch of sultans down there. The 11 wealthiest countries in the world. Now, the reason I share that with you, I'm not saying that I believe that the 10 kings or kingdoms are going to be made up of the 10 wealthiest countries, but what I am using that for is this. 
It shows us that sometimes what's going on in the world and the real movers and shakers and people who have influence and whatever are people and kings and kingdoms that we don't even know about. Yet. Yet. But one day, one day, some of this will come together. And someone like the Antichrist could rise out from one of those countries from total obscurity. So I just offer that for some food for thought. Now, don't all of you start wanting to move to Luxembourg, okay? (laughs) Can I just tell you? Not all it's cracked up to be. All right. Folks, thank you so much. Oh, the announcement. I remembered on my own. Actually, I didn't. God helped me. All right, so here's what I want you to know. So not only about the hams, don't, don't bring a ham, Sunday, because we're providing the hams. Bring something else beside ham for our great potluck. But I, I really, when, when someone asks me, why do you do potlucks at the Oasis? Because I want the church, the body of Christ, to get together and get to know each other. And remember a couple weeks ago on our first anniversary, I was challenging all of us to make a bold step for God and to get out of our comfort zone and and to take a reasonable risk. Can I just say even something as little as coming to the potluck and trying to meet somebody that you don't know and, and begin to build a relationship with somebody that you don't know, that's huge. And that's what I'm hoping and praying happens this Sunday. Yeah, we, a lot of us know each other, but a lot of us don't know each other. And we're never going to accomplish that one hour on Sunday or one hour on Tuesday night. But when we have potlucks where we can hang around and eat for several hours and devour hams and stuff, then we've got plenty of time to be able to get to meet some new people. So that's our goal of why we do it, one of them. And then, obviously on Sunday, we meet in the auditorium, so most people are used to parking down there because it's more convenient. But don't forget, this Sunday, because the potluck is here in the cafeteria, it's much easier to park right outside here where you do on Tuesday night and either bring your food in here or come around after church and just move your car and park over here rather than leaving it over there and then having to walk all the way across the campus. Although after we've eaten all that we've eaten, maybe you want to walk all the way across the campus. I don't know. All right. Let's pray and I'll let you folks go. God, thank you. Thank you for reminding us that, that Lord, you are in control. You are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and you remind us through Daniel that kings and, and princes and princesses and All of those kingdoms, they'll come and go. And they will one day be dust. There will be nothing to any earthly kings or kingdoms. They will all pass away. Because they all have come and gone throughout history. The most powerful of kingdoms are no more. And so Lord, help us not to seek to find our answers and and our, put our hope and find our security and stability in, in man-made governments and kings and kingdoms. Help us to place our hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one whose every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day. 
Help us, Lord, to also rejoice in the fact that, God, you not only have forgiven us of our sin and given us your righteousness, but you give us a kingdom to enjoy and be part of forever and ever. And help us to remind ourselves of that in the tough days here on earth. Because we know that through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so we know, Lord, that here on earth, there's going to be some tremendous challenges on this earth for us. But help us to look past that. Help us to look forward to the eternity that we're going to have with you. And the fact that you see in all of us the ability to rule and reign with you in that forever kingdom. May that encourage us and even help us to see ourselves in a much different light than maybe we ever have up to this point. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for coming. See you on Sunday.